0: Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone who's looking to perform at their highest level. I'm your host, as always, Todd Davidson, and on today's episode, I have three-time Paralympian, Paralympic gold medalist at Rio 2016, Will Bailey. On today's episode, I wanted to know what Will's journey was like from Great Ormond Street Hospital to being at the top of the Paralympic table tennis food chain. And I wanted to know what P was like for him growing up as a child and why he feels that Paralympians don't get the credit they deserve for their actual athleticism. Will is someone who I have massive amounts of respect for and even more so now he's raising money for Great Ormond Street Hospital by selling rainbow face masks. You can grab yourself one of these by checking out the link in the podcast description. But without further ado, let's get to today's episode. Hi guys, and welcome to episode number three of the Platform to Perform podcast. On today's episode, I have a silver medalist from London 2012, gold medalist from Rio 2016, Paralympic table tennis champion, Will Bailey. How are you doing today, Will?
1: Great, thanks, man. How are you?
0: I'm more than excellent, more than excellent. Um, So for those those people who were under a rock for London 2012 and Rio 2016. Uh, who is Will Bailey the athlete, and what is Will Bailey like as a person?
1: Well, like um, I'll start with the athlete a bit. That's probably easier. I, I I've been a table tennis player for you know since I was six years old. Really, it's all I've known, and I was lucky enough to play. I've been lucky enough to play in three. Um, paralympic games beijing 2008 london 2012 rio 2016 and obviously i've had the massive high of my home home olympics in uh, in london 2012 and then to win the gold in in rio was was spectacular really and now i'm training so hard for tokyo at the moment trying to trying to win back to back because that's never been done before And i guess as a person i've had a lot uh, a lot of ups and downs in my life i was born with a condition called arthrogryphosis which is like a severe arthritis that affects all four limbs and at seven years old i had a non-hodgkin's lymphoma blood cancer and then uh yeah so those sort of big things in my life have sort of shaped me as this you know the sort of person that i am i guess i'm quite determined and uh and um you know quite mentally strong which is really good for my sport i think um
0: so with all <laughs> with all that you've gone through and obviously quite early on in your life uh what was it that Got you into table tennis
1: um, it was actually my grandma who bought me a table tennis table like a mini one, and we put it in the garage and it was when I was recovering from I was having chemo at the time, and uh, it was just uh, something that I could do. you know I could still be active. I was always playing football. And things like that, but it was something that I could do with my Hickman in, you know, without getting it ripped out, basically. And, and uh, yeah, so it was, I, I loved it. It gave me a great, it gave me a lot of confidence, being able to beat my brother, being able to beat my family members, you know, uh, even though I was so ill, you know.
0: Was Was this one of the first things you almost gained a bit of confidence from?
1: Yeah, yeah, I definitely gained a lot of confidence and gave me a lot of. Uh, Confidence at school as well, just going in, playing people at school, and, and making friends that way as well. Being part of teams and, and it was yeah, it was it was it was great for me.
0: And uh, so I currently work in a school, and fortunately, times moved on in the sense that <laughs> that there are provisions that can be put in place to uh, help children or young adults, as it were. When you yeah. were at school, how how was it for you managing the various aspects that you had going on?
1: Oh, um, school. School was good for me because I was lucky enough. I had an older brother, and he kind of um, toughened me up before I went to secondary school. If you know what I mean, because he sort of always used to call me, you know, he, you know, as brothers do, call you cripple, call you all this, you know, <laughs> brilliant, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, and sort of like so, I I kind of heard the worst of what I could be called anyway before I even went to school. So like, nothing could really like really fazed me and I think I my mum also has got the same disability as me so she kind of like um, she kind of like just gave she just said to me just you know be proud of who you are and like don't worry about what people say to you it's just their opinion and also their it's kind of like when people say things or look at you funny I think it's it's that sometimes it's because they don't know what they're talking about you know because they've never seen you know different you know anything any different so I mean, I mean, it's. It, I, I sort of got on with it. I had to get on with it. There wasn't a lot of like help around from teachers or anything. I was thrown at the deep end really, which, which was tough. But it kind of. I just got. I, I got through it. I managed to bluff my way through. You know.
0: Yeah, and um, I haven't put this question yeah. in the show notes, so uh, apologies how this comes out. But it's really interesting that you say your brother helped toughen you up, and your mum, dare I say, almost gave you an idea of what to expect how important yeah. is it do you feel for parents of uh, children with a disability not to necessarily wrap their child or daughter sorry their son or daughter in cotton wool when it comes to obviously stuff like first going to school or say going to a sports club or stuff that could be incredibly nerve-wracking for potentially nerve-wracking for a child with a disability
1: massively i mean I mean, to be honest, it was it was nerve wracking going into P E lessons when I first got into secondary school because like you've got to get dr undressed in front of people, you've got to take your shoes and socks off and my feet don't look anything like anyone else's feet. My it's, it becomes very obvious with my hands but um it was it was my mum my mum always said you've got to you know you know, you're good at sport, you should do it and you should you should you should go and outperform people and work harder than people and and then you'll gain their respect. And I kind of just thought, and then I remember one time I, I, I got asked to, I wanted to do football because it was football was on the PE, you know, thing. And I, I my dad was a football manager and I'd always grown up with him when they, and I, but I couldn't put football boots on my feet. And, um, the, the guy rightly said, you can't play football without football boots. And I remember my mum coming down and going, um, if he if anything happens to him, I take full responsibility. But he <laughs> he, he, has, he, he has to go out and play, and he she, she wrote it. And the PE teacher, I mean, this was in year seven. I mean, it just shows you like he might have thought that I was going to do something in sport or something because he actually kept the letter. And he oh, sent wow. it to me last. He, he, he sent it to me last year.
0: Oh no way! And it was
1: like, yeah, yeah, it, and he and it, he's called Mr. Burn, and he said like. <sighs> He, he was like, wow, this sort of sums it up. Because, uh, you know, I was just chucked in. My mum was like, she was that sort of, she was quite tough. So it, I think that that kind of helped me in a way.
0: Do you think that in a way that sort of, uh, I'm going to do this, even if, it, it's, even if I'm going to do something in my way, do you feel like mentally that almost helped you out in terms of, obviously, like you said, the inspiration of, I am going to do this. I'm going to find a way to make it work and I'm not going to be, let myself be any different. Do you think that's helped you in where you're at today?
1: Yeah, 100%. Because, um, because you know, the, the hard times uh, make you make you more resilient. You know, you, you have to definitely, if you come through those moments, you know, those, those times where you have to adapt, you have to keep putting yourself in those awkward situations outside your comfort zone because then things, you know you just get used to it and uh, it becomes e- it becomes easier to push yourself and to make yourself uncomfortable i really I really believe that helped me a lot
0: in in terms of putting yourself in either for example an uncomfortable position or a potentially vulnerable uh, position how important is the relationship between well for for, uh, for a start an athlete and their coach anyway? But uh, a Paralympic athlete and their coach—do you feel like it takes on any more significance, or do you see it as no different? To, um, if you see what I'm saying,
1: I, I yeah, I don't think it. I don't think it's any different. I think it's really important. Uh, it's really, it's really for me the the most important thing is between a coach or a teacher and and me through growing up as being just like, especially at a top level of sport. I mean. Just for someone to 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 believe in you and trust you trust each other, you know. If you you know and, and you and believe in you and to back you, you know, I think that's really important. Uh, and uh, as soon as that goes, it it becomes really difficult. You know, it becomes really difficult for both parties, you know, to perform.
0: Yeah, and as a well as a strength and conditioning coach myself, how or could you either a give examples of or b what your advice would be in terms of coaches building that trust with their athletes and building that relationship? Do you think there's, uh, not necessarily a right or wrong way to do it, but is there anything in your experience that's led to you trusting coaches more or perhaps poor experiences which have meant you've not got on with coaches certain, uh, as well as you would like to have done?
1: Yeah, in my personal experience, um, I, I like, you know, I work as I work well, and I'm not just saying this, I work well with you because I felt that you were genuine, and you wanted to help me, and you and you were there every single day. You didn't you didn't miss days, and you were consistent. I think that helps being consistent, being honest, and um, sort of I, I believed in you. I believe I believed that that you know what you were doing was helping me, and I I believe you thought that that it was as well. So I didn't. The trust was there, but sometimes I think in a, in some cases people do the bare minimum, and and that. <laughs> And that can lo- make me lose my trust in someone because I yeah. think that they don't want it. They don't want it as much as me or they don't... Or, or, or you know, and, that, and then I can lose my trust and, that can, and I can shut down then and that can become a very difficult relationship, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's fully understandable. Obviously, anyone who's spoken to you or knows you on a personal level knows how much table tennis means to you. It's your whole life. So I can understand why having somebody within the coaching setup or, you know, whatever could detract from that trust or like you said make you lose interest very quickly. Yeah. How yeah. how important is that so obviously with the English Institute of Sport so for the listeners who aren't aware the English Institute of Sport is an organization set up specifically to support olympic and paralympic athletes and cater for their needs as much as possible. How much how important is it that there is a team feel obviously amongst you your teammates strength and conditioning coaches psychologists and all the other support staff that are there to help you
1: Oh well, it's absolutely hugely important. It's 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 the most important thing you, I think, really to have that have that circle of t- a team working for you and working with you to create br- excellence. Because every every other country in the world's got that now. Todd. do you understand what I mean? Like every other yeah. country is doing that very very well. And uh, and if it doesn't happen, then and it's not working. Then then we're falling behind. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we we need to keep on top of it, and I don't. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of development needs to be done in that area to improve it. Work close, more, work more closely with support staff, and also uh, sometimes I feel just because we're not possibly the sexiest sport in the world, we have to train very 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 hard, and we're competing against countries like China. You know what I mean? And we're competing yep. against these guys who are absolute machines. And so, <laughs> suddenly you find yourself working with, at times, you know, strength and conditioning coaches that are working with boxing. They're specialists in that area and they're not really fantastic. Or, or you know, yeah. I'm not naming names, but do you know what I mean? And it can become quite, uh, then, you lo- then you lose confidence in the system, you know, to yeah. be honest with you.
0: Yeah. on yeah. yeah. So for the listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with uh, table tennis, so a couple of questions. One, for those who, for example, aren't aware of just how big a sport table tennis is in China and what you're actually competing against, can you give a little bit of context as to the level of that challenge?
1: Yeah, well, there's uh, two million Paralympic table tennis players in China. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. yeah so ma- I mean,
0: any idea how many we have in this country? Just as uh, just to put well, things think, in perspective,
1: uh, I'm not sure, but. Uh, the national championships which obviously isn't every single player it's it's, it's not it, you know it's like a, a, a bit of an elite group but there's 300 entering the national championships or something <laughs> like that which is, which is this region. Yeah. so I mean yeah it's a big it's a, it's a big difference you know but oh, it's yes, nice. it's a yeah, it's, it's world's apart and it's you know China are very dominant you know so and they keep they keep learning they keep moving changing things before they have to change things so we need to do that, you
0: know? Absolutely. So I, you also touched on a point that uh, if I'm being brutally honest, I definitely learned a lot when I was at the English Institute of Sport. So for people who, for example, might be uneducated about the physical requirements of table tennis or they don't know what your schedule, as an example, looks like, uh, first question is, can you give us a sort of what a weekly schedule looks like for you? And the second part of that yeah. question is, what physical attributes do you think are important to be a top-class table tennis player?
1: Okay, well, just I'll just do a daily one, and then you can do yeah, okay. this every day. This Friday, it's uh, so I get up uh, about six o'clock. I I go to EIS. I do like um, forty-five minute bike session just because I'm trying. I'm just uh, working on my CV fitness at the moment, trying trying to uh, burn some fat as well because yeah. I want to be. You know, yeah, I want to be as lean as possible, and then I want to play. And then uh, I play at night. I have a break, I have breakfast, then I play at nine to eleven thirty. Usually an S S and C session at one o'clock, and then three to five thirty in the evening as well. And then usually a, a cool down or a stretching in the evening as well. Session like just after this. So you, it's basically and that and that that's what it is Monday to Friday.
0: Yeah. and,
1: so- then, and then it it's usually a competition.
0: Yeah, so more well, very much obviously a full-time athlete, and I think uh, as you touched yeah. on there, how many in a week? How many as a how many hours do you think you would spend on the table in any given week?
1: Uh, it's about six hours per day. Six
0: hours per day. So like six yeah, hours yeah. per day, thirty hours a week. You can only imagine how many hours you've then got to tolerate. Yeah. And uh, I think also a thing that people perhaps who are not familiar with table tennis <laughs> underestimate is. There's a difference between, for example, two very low-level people, I don't know, on holiday, yeah, knocking yeah. a ball about, and what six hours a week looks like at this sort of speed yeah, and yeah. intensity as you guys play.
1: Yeah, you're flying around the table. And you, you know, you're putting everything into every single ball. You're hitting as hard as you can, and you're moving. You're constantly moving. So it's yeah, it's it's kind of like a, you're the same sort of footwork as probably boxing in a way. Cause yeah. You, you're sort of on your toes all the time you're moving you're having to sort of adjust but you're not doing sprints you're just sort of like you're just sort of like moving around all the time constantly at a high level so it's yeah it's tough physically
0: I mean I must say I'm not just saying this but I remember um, when I first started getting experience with yourselves and the other boys of uh, the Paralympic table tennis team I was always yeah. thinking right I don't really want to ask but I can't really see what the disability is when I'm watching you boys move around the table
1: yeah 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 it's not obvious and that's sometimes uh sometimes a little bit frustrating because I'm not I'm not I'm you know I've got maybe a couple more to go but I don't think I've really had the sort of recognition that I might have got if it would have been a more obvious disability even though it's because it's quite um I've hidden it quite well and it's quite but it's quite a severe disability and I think you know if I if I'd have had you know, one leg missing or something people would have been going this guy's ridiculous this guy's incredible <laughs> but because you know because even though people with one leg missing are, are in a higher class to me you know in a less disabled class yeah. so it's weird isn't it how, how, how Paralympic sports sort of like perceived in that way you, you have to have a certain look to be sort of maybe maybe recognised in, in that sort of sport sometimes
0: i i couldn't agree more so for for those listeners who perhaps aren't aware of how the classification system works in Paralympic sport, could you give a little bit more context behind that
1: yeah in my, in standing in standing classes there's six to ten so six is the most uh is the most disabled class and ten's the least disabled class so we've got a player called Kim Naber in class ten who's uh who's got one one hand one arm affected and that is uh is non playing arm for example, so yeah.
0: Yeah that makes that makes sense and um yeah. there was, uh in terms of dealing with setbacks one of the biggest setbacks you had to deal with was being reclassified could you explain about the scenario in which that happened and how you dealt with that as a setback
1: yeah um it was in uh i think it was 2010 uh, i just i just won the german open and, and and beaten the number 6 3 and one one in the world and uh, in the tournament, and uh, the next tournament after that was the European Championships, and I, I I I arrived there very confident, thinking you know after just after the German Open I, I had, I was like I can win this, I can become European champion at 19 or whatever I was, and I was so excited. And then <laughs> next thing I know, the coach comes up to me and he goes, "You're in a class, you know, you've got a classification, and you have got to go to a meeting room in this hotel." Half an hour later, I was in a meeting room with about seven doctors around me, assessing my movement and, and what I can do, and physically. And then uh, two hours later, I was sat in the I was sat outside waiting for them to give a decision, and I got reclassified up a class, uh, which basically I thought at the time it ended my career, and so did, like a lot of my coaches as well. So it's like it's basically like uh, a, a, a you know flyweight boxer, but going up to middleweight. Or something oh. like that, you know what I mean? So it's uh, it's, it's kind of like difficult, very yeah.
0: difficult. Or Queens Park Rangers getting put in the Champions League eh mate.
1: Yeah, exactly, mate. Exactly. <laughs> so I, was, I was I was gutted, but
0: um, um, yeah. Going going back to going back to a previous point, you said it's it's perhaps difficult for you because people who don't know you, and for example, they they probably they in certain circumstances they wouldn't know you had any sort of disability. Um, yeah. How how does process affect your ability to move on the table or your, um, how is it perhaps, how have you had to adapt your game as a result of it?
1: Uh, it, it affects my, um, so it's, it's quite severe in my legs. So obviously my feet aren't feet, as you know, it, they're basically been rebuilt, uh, and, uh, and I don't have an ankle joint, so I'm I'm pretty restricted. And also, uh, it, it, it's, uh, really difficult to balance i don't uh i don't have muscle in my lower legs so that that makes it difficult to balance and also um, my all my joints are, are not are not fixed properly like uh my hips are, are in a in a not in a not normal position My my shoulders are are, are forwards and that you know not back not back into a normal position and that restricts a lot of movement obviously um uh basically a lot a lot of my joints are are very restricted i don't have wrist which is massive in table tennis like wrist is such an important thing so my my basically all my all my joints are fixed so i don't have a lot of movement in my joints so it makes it very difficult to uh, to move or to like or to be flexible or anything like this is really difficult
0: so it um I could be. Well, you'll obviously put me put me right if I'm wrong. Um, yeah. Am I right in thinking that you get, whereas a table tennis player who perhaps does have more mobility might generate or might be able to impact on the ball more with their wrist? You're kind of locked in place. If that's right in me saying that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I tried to throw. Med- I've been throwing medicine balls recently, trying to get. You know, trying to get more power. and... <laughs> I mean, I can't throw it half the distance of what the guys with wrist can. It makes a massive difference. You don't think, but just that last little bit, and it's just like table tennis. Trying to hit a ball using your wrist to go over the top of the ball just adds 20, 30% onto the power of the ball. You know, so when you're locked in at that, it's frustrating. But I try to adapt my shot as best I can to try and get as much power as possible. But it's still low on power. So I've just changed my game, which is like a consistent game. So it's not like full of power, but it's just like trying to get the ball on constantly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: One of, the, one of the things you sort of said earlier, which I thought was really interesting, was that you don't feel like you've got the credit you deserve because, as you said, there are other athletes with perhaps a more visible disability. Um, just to give an uh, almost personal example of when I realised, I mean, obviously, you guys as uh, people who've gone to the Paralympic Games Even as a coach, I'm like, well, you must obviously be good because you've done that. But uh, do you think that um, Paralympic athletes, even though London 2012 did a great marketing campaign around it, do you think the media are almost too quick to, for example, look at somebody as a Paralympic table tennis player or a Paralympic whatever sport they play, as opposed to these guys are unbelievably good at what they do?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think we're still like miles miles behind but it's like i find it sometimes a bit fake sometimes the the sort of like the the adulation sometimes from some people and they're sort of like they have to say it because it's politically correct to say things but i mean it, it just shows like like money talks sponsors talk uh people talk but you know that's what talks and we're media coverage talks tv talks all these things and we and we don't we don't get those things so that's where the truth lies you know that's where the truth lies people can people can say this say this you know and it sounds all good and sort all nice but then but then we're so far behind any sort of coverage or respect or we go under the radar totally under the radar which is frustrating but that's the truth and that's where that's where sometimes paralympic sport is it's i mean i mean if you're an Olympian <laughs> Uh, if I was an Olympic table tennis uh, uh, gold medalist, do you really think I'd be li- living in Rotherham? No offence to Rotherham. But, um, <laughs> I mean, business. I mean, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't. I'd be a millionaire, mate. But I'm not. I'm on. I'm on an APA, which I'm very grateful for from UK Sport. But if, but, but, you can't compare the two. I mean, sponsors are interested in, and they give serious. I mean that it's you know, it's just different it's totally different, isn't it? Yeah. It's just different world. It's a different world.
0: Yeah, I think we're the, thing-
1: the true amateurs. We're the true amateurs. And and and, and in the Olympics it's they they're you know, they're a lot of them are millionaires, basically. Yeah. A lot of them are just like, yeah, yeah.
0: I think the the well, the big thing for me is obviously you saying your weekly schedule, that's no different to uh, an able body athlete or as you said, somebody who is legitimately making a financially you know they're set for life really in, in a certain way if you think about it um, absolutely
1: yeah absolutely yeah well, they don't have to go through the pain you know the same sort of pains but yeah. it's different isn't it yeah yeah
0: of course as you said you know to get to the top in any sport able-bodied Paralympic whatever you're going to have to make sacrifices but um absolutely. on uh, absolutely. as you said the pain the pain is different one of the um one of the Documentaries I saw you on. You were describing how people see, like you said, the success. They might see the gold at Rio, but they don't see almost what's beneath the uh, water surface. You, you touched upon right at the start of the podcast about the uh, non-Hodgkin's non-Hodg- lymphoma. Um, can you give us, a, well, give the listeners a little bit more of a, a story? As to, for example, I know when you were younger, you spent a great deal of time in Great Ormond Hospi- uh, a Hospital. And without meaning to sort of tell your story too much, um, the odds you battled with in terms of the clinical trials, could you give us a bit more of a, well, from your own personal yeah. viewpoint behind that?
1: Yeah, well, all I know is I, my mum had to sign a paper and she's, you know, to say that basically do what? Experiment, really, to, you know, to try and keep him alive, basically, like try anything, basically. So they had the, the sort of the rights to just try anything any sort of chemo and I, I i tried this new drug of i keep i mean i, I did a write up recently it's on my website about about it and uh and it was it was quite successful but i do remember um i do remember for example being in my bed uh and and opposite me a friend of mine literally literally dying in front of me and i and uh and like it was we all had our own cubicle so we all had our own uh we all had our own rooms with a PlayStation in or whatever, Nintendo or whatever. So it was very private, but, but you know, you, you know, when something's going on and I, it was like two o'clock in the morning and there's about 50 nurses and doctors in a, in a room and then, and then, and then it all goes quiet. And then, you know, and then obviously you ask what's happened and, and no one lies to you in hospital. It's just brutally honest, you know? And it, and, it, and it's like, I, I mean, I, I'm very. I am very grateful that I survived that because, yeah, I mean, I lot to the doctors, and that's what I try and that's adds motivation for me in my life to make the make make the most of it, you know.
0: Yeah, one of the. Oh, I was going to say one of the things, one of the quotes you've said that I think is absolutely superb, um, is that you don't want to be remembered for being a Paralympic table tennis player. You want to be remembered as a as good a table tennis player as you possibly can be. Um, yeah, exactly. The, the example I was meant to give earlier was I remember for me the moment when I, as I said, I realised just how skilled you boys are. Was uh, I was playing one of your teammates, uh, Jack. I'm going to correct me if I. Yeah, put yeah out Jack the, Hunter, uh, Spivey. Hunter Spivey So, for just to give a little bit of context to people, I played Jack, who um, was in a wheelchair. Uh, who was in a wheelchair? He was sat on a big swish, uh, a big gimbal. Uh, instead of yep. in the wheelchair And he played me with a paddle Or a table tennis bat That literally went on a key ring And obviously I was moving about the table as best I could And he absolutely wiped the floor with me um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it just it's just one of those things Well, as you said, people underestimate A, how good you guys are yeah. B, how much effort you put in And C, just what it takes to get to I mean, it takes a lot to get to the top of any sport But Paralympic sport, as you said Going through the pains yeah. you guys go through is even more so. Um, I'm going to change okay. tact a little bit now. Uh, you had your daughter, Bella, was it three years ago now?
1: No, just a year ago. Ah, she'll be, yeah, yeah. sorry,
0: she'll be three in, uh, in Tokyo Soon
1: 2020. Enough. Yeah, 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 exactly.
0: Ah, that's where the number exactly. comes from. How, is, uh, yeah. how has becoming a father, ch- or has becoming a father changed you as an athlete or a person at all?
1: Poor, yeah. Uh, I'd say yeah, yeah, it has massively changed me, as a, in lots of different ways. I think, uh, I think, as a person, it's changed me because um, I'm not as selfish as I was. You know, I, I, I try and think about her and think about uh, my family, trying to make, you know, trying to make them happy. And but it's very difficult because I'm away so much with table tennis. So it's, uh, uh, it also motivates me as a player, though. It makes me more hungry because. I want her to see me win. I want her to see me at my best. And and I want her to see me win and, and lead by example. And, and also like to to motivate her and to show, you know, to just be an example to her that, that you can do anything, even if uh, all ad, all of the, all the odds are stuck, stacked against you, you can come through it, anything. And that, that makes me, although it sounds cheesy, it, it motivates me, you know, that motivates me a lot. Oh, yeah.
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Like, as you said, you know, you, probably don't feel like you're playing just for your own sake anymore.
1: Yeah, exactly. I feel like I'm, you know, doing it for her as well. So that's, you know, that adds, that adds a lot of extra hours, practice time.
0: <laughs> I bet it does. I bet it does. On the, as you said, on the subject of motivation and psychology, uh, we had a little chat off air about the psychology behind table tennis. And you even said about the proximity of you and the other player uh, yeah. how do you refocus your mind or do do things change when for example you serve to win the match versus serving to stay in the match and how do you refocus between points?
1: For me uh, it doesn't change really serving to win the match or to stay in the match I, I try and keep the same mentality but uh, and, and just think tactically but yeah w- w- when you're so close to an, an opponent you really can see the the stress that they're under, or or how they're feeling, you can sort of get a sense of that, you know, because you know when you're at a Paralympic Games and and the, you know you can just feel it. You see that you see the shaking, you see the sweating, and you see the you see everything, you know. And uh, it's it's just part of it's a massive part of the game being able to deal with the pressure and being able to sort of be composed under that pressure, feel the pressure and and feel the excitement and the sort of the tension, but, but be composed as well.
0: Is there, is there anything you do specifically to, um, I mean, I suppose the, again, reverting to my own experiences uh, as a boxer, you, I guess you're almost putting on a poker face and trying not to show your opponent that you're perhaps feeling the pressure or under as much stress as what you actually are.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a bit of a bluff, you know, the whole thing. and And you've just got to, uh, you've got. You, you keep telling yourself you're playing well. You're you, you're doing good, and I do a lot. I do a lot of stuff like that. I just great shot. You know, good stuff. You know, <laughs> you, know you know you're you're quick today. Or something like you know. I do a lot of that. You start believing it. You know. Oh, You, know, you keep telling yourself. Yeah, you you start believing it. Exactly. And, and, uh, and that's big for me. I just keep telling myself how well how well I'm doing and. And, uh, you know, it's good for me to be like that. Even when I'm down in matches, I, I, you know, I get stuck in then and, I try and I try and make it difficult and dig my heels in. I say to myself, dig your heels in here, you know, make it difficult. If they're going to beat me, I want to go down fighting, you know?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. On the, you, you mentioned earlier about, for example, doing uh, medicine ball throws about getting your cardiovascular work in early in the morning. Um, one of the, Areas I'm sort of really interested in in terms of strength and conditioning is the transfer of training. How much do? You, how much of a confidence boost is it for you knowing, as you said, you're perhaps doing more than your opponent? As you said, early starts, hours on the table, getting your strength work done.
1: Uh, yeah, that's the biggest thing for me, and, uh, and uh, so now I've done more. And I'm not going to lie; I'm not perfect. I've done. I think I am one of the most hard working people in, in, in sport that I know, but I've also had times where where I've not where I've not done as much as I can sometimes, you know? And mm-hmm. and, and I've lost confidence. I've lost yeah. confidence in my game and, and not performed in tournaments before. And maybe my not working as hard as someone is different to someone else's not working as hard, but it still it affected me and and it I lost massive confidence through that. So I mean, yeah, it's, it's huge, it's huge. Even if it's a mentality thing, just going to the gym, being there, doing a session, yeah. you've done it. You know, you know what I mean? It might, not even, it might not even help my table tennis that much, but it helps no. my head, you know? Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah, I remember when I was at the EIS, I'd constantly said to the coaches, I'm like, what's this exercise good for? What's this exercise good for? And obviously, you're, they're trying to keep you fit and actually keep you injury-free. But me personally, I think, as you said, as you alluded to there, the confidence to know you've done everything physically possible is you almost yeah. can't put a price on that regardless of how much it helps yeah. physically. As you said, that exactly. that level exactly. of preparedness. It's
1: meant, it's mentally, so yeah, just to be mentally ready is, is massive. Yeah.
0: Um, okay. Right, you, so just to wrap things up, mate, three questions for you. First, uh, first two relate to retirement. So you said you've got obviously the Tokyo 2020 and you think you've got what, one more Olympic cycle after that?
1: yeah I, I think
0: so um so when you do eventually have to retire from table tennis, what would you like to be remembered for
1: i think uh just a just a, g- a great player and someone who gave everything you know didn't really you know someone who got the most out of themselves uh, every day i think that uh, that would be great
0: that's i i like that a lot mate. i like that a lot i dare i say yeah. i think if if any person could retire even from sport or life, whatever, and just know that they've given it their all and got the most of what talent they had, that's, I like that. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know we're both you know, boxing fans, and Tyson Fury's story has been quite inspiring. Um,
1: yeah.
0: Obviously, a lot of athletes go off the rails when they do finally have to retire from sport. And as an elite athlete, I'm sure that even though, like you said, you've got potentially two Olympic cycles um, to go, how does an elite athlete plan for life without sport when all they've ever known is that sport?
1: Oh Yeah, it's, it's really difficult and uh, it does worry me sometimes, you know, having a daughter and everything and not having anything else to fall back on. You know, I've, I've given everything to this sport and I don't, re- I haven't really had too much support, you know, outside of this sport. So it'd be nice to, I think in the future, they should really look at that. I mean, I know they're looking at it more in football now where people, like, retire from football. Yeah. Uh, they get support out of there. And uh, it'd be good if they did that with, like, Olympic and Paralympic athletes as well because, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what I'd do out of sports to be honest. And it could be really difficult mentally as well to lose something that I love, you know, doing yeah. it every day. It's, it's a massive change that's going to happen one day in my life and that'll be hard.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, I even, Like I said, obviously, I've not got anywhere near to the uh, levels of elite sport you have, but... I'm sh- when people said to me, what would you do if it wasn't for sport? And I'm like, um, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, so yeah, exactly. like so I I don't even play elite sport. And for me, the thought of having a life without sport is, uh, one I don't want to think about. Same as you, mate.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Would, so, would you,
0: yeah. would, would coaching suit you at all? Or are you not, do you almost want a little bit of a break from the sport when the time does come?
1: I think I'd be open to definitely an opportunity, but I'm, I'm not sure I'd get that to be honest, because, uh, <laughs> Uh, I just I I don't know if I'm really that type of yes man that you sometimes need to be in. There's those sort of roles. I think it'll be difficult to to get me into that that role. But I, I'd love to do it. I'd love the opportunity to coach, but it's just difficult to get into, you know.
0: Yeah, mate. I <laughs> I can totally understand in terms of as you said, you know, being a yes man. Yeah. I think for me, a lot That's of that. working with elite sport is, as you said, that that athlete is your number one priority and their goal almost has to be your goal. So I I totally see where you're coming from in that regards.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Um, And finally, you know, I've seen a lot of your charitable work that you have done. I think it's unbelievable what you do do. Um, Where can people find out more about you or the charities you work with or just get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, um, people can go to my website, willbailey.com and uh, check it out. I do a lot. I love you know doing things for charity especially you know working with people that you know with disabilities or yeah you know young kids um, who are you know who are having problems or issues uh, you know i really I'm, it really inspires me so yeah it'll be good to do more of that
0: uh, mate I just want to say I'd like you know I learned so much from working with obviously yourself the other lads at GB Paralympic Table Tennis obviously the coaches and from as a friend and as a coach, it's been a real privilege getting to know you over 2016 and uh, obviously yeah. continuing to chat with you now. Um, I've loved hearing your story and I think a lot of people will, I hope a lot of people take a lot from it as, as I have, mate.
1: Thanks, mate. It's been a, been a pleasure and hopefully stay in touch, man.
0: Oh, absolutely, mate! Absolutely, and like I said, if there's any, if there's any spare plane tickets that happen to be my size for Tokyo 2020, uh, you've got yeah, my number, and coming. whatnot.
1: <laughs> you're coming.
0: <laughs> stick me in, stick me in the suitcase, son. I'll, I'll. Uh, oh, water boy, whatever you need, mate. Whatever you need.
1: <laughs> Top man. Cheers, anyway, mate.
0: mate, it's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Cheers, mate. Take care, mate.
0: Best of luck for Cheers 2020, on. mate. I'll, I'll be watching on.
1: Cheers, mate. Cheers, Take it
0: easy, Bye. mate. Bye, mate. Thank you for listening to episode three of the platform to perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, Will Bailey. If you've have liked the show, then feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're in a position to support the podcast, or you simply want access to the programs and strength and conditioning content I've been releasing during lockdown, then head over to my Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P coaching. Now, if you want to go one better than that and contribute to a more noble cause, then I'd invite you to purchase a Will Bailey inspired rainbow face mask, which all the proceeds will be going towards Great Ormond Street Hospital. Thank you for your support. And I will catch you again in next week's episode where I'll be interviewing Don Demetrius on all things business, coaching, standing out in a saturated social media market and being an introvert in an extroverted coaching world. Thank you again, and I'll catch you in the next episode.